Amen. All right. So if you are new to theological equipping, this semester we've been going over what is called the application of redemption. Last semester we talked about how Christ earned our salvation, and this uh, semester we're talking about how we get that stuff. So Jesus did the good stuff. He got the good stuff. This semester is how do we get the good stuff from Christ? And so it's what's called the application of redemption. And uh, one of the things we have to talk about is what is known as predestination, which is one of the most controversial things that are uh, debated amongst Protestants and even Catholics. And so uh, uh, we're going to be be continuing to talk about predestination. Two weeks ago, Jeff talked about election. Last week, we talked about reprobation, and man, that was a cheery Sunday. And then today, we're going to talk some more about predestination, and then next week, we're going to talk some more about predestination, but we're going to switch it up a little bit for today and uh, next Sunday. What we've been doing is what is known as systematic theology. Systematic theology is where you try to summarize what the entire Bible says on any topic. Okay? So philosophy plus Bible equals systematic theology. If someone comes to you and says, what does the Bible say about salvation? You can't say, Paul says you're saved by faith alone and not by works, and James says you're saved by works, and the end. You have to figure out a way, if God is not schizophrenic, if God's word is inerrant, to harmonize those things, and that's what we've been doing with systematic theology. Well, today and next week, we're going to be doing something a little different, what is called historical theology. We're going to take a look at what the church, meaning the Christian church, has historically believed uh, about predestination, and I want you to see several things, especially today. I want you to realize that Calvin didn't invent what is today called Calvinism. For 1,500 years, before Calvin was even born, the church had to wrestle with things like predestination. You can't say, I don't believe in predestination. The word predestination, prohorizo is what it is in Greek, is in the Bible. The question is, on what grounds does God predestine? What does predestination mean? And so today we're going to look at it from the uh, view of the early church and the medieval church. And then next uh, week we're going to look at it from the view of the Reformation and post-Reformation. So, Hopefully you enjoy this. Now, uh, I want to start off this lesson by reading a small portion of Scripture that often gets overlooked. Does somebody want to read for me Matthew 16, 18? Not chapter 16 through 18, chapter 16, verse 18. Hmm. We can do this by process of elimination. If you're literate, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand down. Whoever's left is a candidate to read. Okay? Anybody want to read that? Great, go for it. Yes, Matthew 16, 18. It's okay. It's okay. We can have. Great. Okay, now here's why I, ha- I want to uh, mention this before we get into talking a little bit about this doctrine in church history. Right before that, uh, that verse, there's some really powerful stuff going on. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? Some people say you're a prophet, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're all these other things, which is, by the way, something you can bring into our culture. People will say that Jesus is just a good teacher, just a good prophet. He says then, who do you say I am? And he says, you're Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is the correct answer. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then says something else interesting, which is not, good job, Peter, you're so smart, but rather, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, meaning that even understanding who Christ is is linked to election. That's fascinating. But none of that is the point of what I want to mention with verse 18, it's this phrase right here. This is really powerful. Ready? That you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, some translations say the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Now, let me tell you why that's really important. The Bible here has just promised that Jesus will preserve his church, okay? There's never been a time where there have not been true believers. Sometimes the church is more or less pure. Sometimes the church is drifted doctrinally more or less, but the church has never just ceased to be. 
right? Why? Because it's the Spirit who's preserving the church and not us, okay? So when we talk about the faith and Christianity, you need to understand that we stand within a 2,000-year-old tradition, even older if you go back into our roots in Judaism. And so you need to understand that in the same way, I can't just say, let's say I say that I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, but I don't hold any of the positions of whatever party I'm claiming to be. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay? In the same way, you can't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't hold all these other doctrines or whatever. You don't get to define what a Christian is. It's already been defined for you historically. And so you need to understand that Christianity doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with your parents. Okay? You'll have this a lot of times where I'll talk to somebody and they'll say something like, you know, I really prefer more traditional forms of worship. And I say, oh, okay, like in Latin doing Gregorian chant. And they're like, no, no, no. What I mean is really just the kind of tradition that I grew up in with my parents' church. Oh, okay. So that's not traditional Christianity. That's just like 40 years ago. Christianity is much older than that. And so I want you to realize that we stand within a Christian tradition. To say I'm a Christian means something, and it doesn't mean other things. And so what we're doing today is we're looking at what other Christians, we're looking at what the church has believed about this doctrine even before we get to Calvin, okay? So with that in mind, I've drawn something on the board that nobody can see because there's too much information and it's too small. So I'm just going to try to describe it real quickly to you. First of all, Christianity is divided up into three main branches, okay? Roman Catholicism, what church do you think that includes? The Roman Catholic Church, and that's pretty much it, okay? That's a pretty simple one. Next, you have what's called Greek Orthodoxy. That's the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. When you think of pictures from like the USSR, and you're near, uh, you know, Red Square or something like that. They've got the cool-looking church with the onion domes and all that. Everybody know what I'm talking about? That is Greek Orthodoxy. I don't have time to go into what they believe today. And then uh, lastly, you have Protestantism, okay? Protestantism would include uh, Protestant denominations, meaning Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and uh, uh, these kind of things, okay? There are a bunch of different Protestant denominations. Now, you'll notice that certain groups have not been put up here. Mormons are not Christians. Uh, They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny justification by faith. Basically, everything we hold sacred. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. The Christian Science Movement with Mary Baker Eddy, they're not in it. So they're not on this thing. They're, they're, they're lost. They're not believers. But within Orthodox Christianity, you have these three main groups. And here's how this works from a timeline scale, okay? First of all, you have Old Testament Judaism. And really, Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. What is Christianity? It's Judaism that believes that Jesus is that Messiah that has been prophesied in the Old Testament, Okay. So if you want to say there's a sense in which the church goes back into the Old Testament, the church is the people of God, even from the Old Testament, but from a church history perspective, the church starts around 33 AD. We don't exactly know the precise date of when Jesus uh, died and was raised, but it's about right there. And then you have Catholicism, okay? The word Catholic just means universal, okay? You'll even hear in some of the creeds, we believe in the holy Catholic church. Protestants say those creeds. That doesn't mean we're saying we're Roman Catholic. What it means is we're saying we belong to the one true church that goes back to Jesus and the apostles, okay? So you have Catholicism. In 1054, you have what is known as the Great Schism, and the church splits into two different wings, okay? You have Catholicism in the West, and in the East, you have what's called Greek Orthodoxy, the Greek Orthodox Church. uh, If we ever do a thing on church history, we'll talk more about this. This is just a quick cursory overview. You don't have to remember anything that I'm saying right now, okay? And then in 1517, it's typically uh, the date for when Protestantism is seen to uh, begin because that's when uh, Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, and uh, then you get Protestantism. Now, when you talk about church history, you typically divide it into four different sections, okay? 
from the time of the New Testament to about 500 AD, these are rough estimates, to about 500 AD, you have what's known as the early church. From 500 AD to 1500 AD, you have the medieval church, okay? From 1500 AD to about 1750, you have what's known as uh, the Reformation, okay? The Reformation era church. And then after that, you have what is called the, uh, the modern church, okay? So those are kind of the big groupings. So today, we're going to do two of those. We're going to do the early church and the medieval church. And then next week, we're going to do the uh, Reformation and uh, the modern church, okay? I'm going to lean very heavily. We use several different resources in preparing these lectures. I'm going to lean really heavily today and next week on uh, a guy named Greg Allison who wrote a historical theology book, which is helpful because it divides church history by topic instead of by time. Now, that's a bunch of boring stuff. Okay, so let's reset, and I'll give you some more of that Zach Lee energy. Now, what do you think a church service was like for most of church history? Think about it. Today you came in, you're sitting down on these soft, smushy chairs. You have a Bible in your own language. I'm not wearing some sort of robe. Why? Because I'm not a Jedi Knight, okay? And so the church services have not always been like that. If you were to go to church in the Middle Ages, things would have been very different. You would have walked into a big cathedral, and there would have been beautiful stained glass pictures of the Bible, different stories in the Bible. Why? Because most people were illiterate and they could not read. The way that you learned the Bible in the Middle Ages was through picture book, basically. You walk into the church and there's a bunch of stained glass images and you're like, oh, the Good Samaritan. Oh, the whatever. And that's how you would learn the Bible because you were illiterate. Services were all conducted in Latin. They were actually all conducted in Latin in the Catholic Church until the late 1960s, 1970s. Okay? So you would go into the church. Not only do you not even read your own language, but now the service is in Latin. Uh, in the early medieval period, you would stand the entire time, and the priest or the bishop would get to sit. How about that? You guys want to do some of that? Huh? You get tired standing for the scripture reading. What if you had to stand for the whole service? So it was just a very, uh, a very different kind of uh, thing than you're probably used to. You didn't have a Bible in your own language. To translate the Bible into your own language was illegal. Uh, and uh, anyway, so... That is the situation we find ourselves in today. So what we're doing today is we're not going over church history. We're not going over church history of everything in the early church or medieval church. We're just talking about the idea of predestination, okay? What did the early church and the medieval church believe about predestination? So let's talk about early church, and then we will get into the medieval church. So on your handout there, you see it says predestination in the early church, so through about 500 A.D. By the way, all the dates that you're going to see today and next Sunday are A.D., we're talking about church history, which is after Christ, okay? Now, a few things. Here's the summary. What did the early church believe about predestination? The, the short answer is they don't have a great summary on it, okay? The early church wanted to hold attention between the sovereignty of God and salvation and the importance of human freedom. Most did not have a fully developed doctrine of predestination. Many believed that election was based upon God's foreknowledge of who would choose him, okay? The early church didn't have a fully developed view of predestination, some people landed on one side, some people landed on another side, but it wasn't as clear as you get in guys like Augustine or in uh, the Reformers or something like that, because that wasn't their big fight. They were trying to do things like not get killed by the Romans, and they were trying to do things like defend the Trinity against uh, heretics like Arius. They had bigger fish to fry, like not getting killed and not letting people be heretics. They didn't have time to fully develop a view of predestination, uh, and also they were trying to respond to fatalism in Greek mythology. Okay, so think back to Greek mythology. So maybe you took a class in this, or maybe you've just ever seen the cartoon Hercules. Who is more powerful than the gods? The Titans. Who is more powerful than the Titans? Do you know? Anybody know? 
the f <laughs> there you go. Yes, uh, in a sense. Uh, the fates, all right? The, the buck stops in Greek mythology with the fates. The fates are the ones that decide what's going to happen to humans and gods in Greek mythology, and their will really can't be thwarted. So there's a strong determinism within uh, Greek mythology, and part of what the early church is doing, as a lot of Gentiles are being converted and coming out of Greek and Roman mythology, is they're trying to show your decisions really do matter. You can't just say the fates have determined this, therefore I'm not culpable. Okay? And so what you end up getting is you don't get a big synthesis on what predestination is in the early church. So I'll give you some quotes from early church leaders on both sides. So here's some quotes about God's sovereignty that sound more reformed, that sound more predestination-y. Okay? This comes, the first comes from Clement of Rome. By the way, he lived from 35 AD to 99 AD, so he is a contemporary of the apostles, which is fascinating. You struggle day and night on behalf of all the brotherhood that through fear and conscientiousness, the number of his elect might be saved. So here you have an early quote about God having elect, right, that he might save. Clement of Alexandria, that's a different guy, lives a, a couple generations later. Uh, God has dispensed his goodness both to Greeks and barbarians, even to those of them who were predestined and in due time called the faithful and the elect. So you have some early church writers saying, God elects. God's calling the people he's already decided to save. But on the other hand, you have church leaders saying kind of more focusing on the free will side. So here's some early church quotes about freedom slash foreknowledge. The first comes from Justin Martyr. He foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born. The people foreknown to believe in him were foreknown to pursue diligently after the fear of the Lord. And now this next quote also comes from Clement of Alexandria, who we just read. Notice, they kind of just hold both intention. God elects some knowing before the foundation of the world that they would be righteous. So there, notice he's saying the reason God elects is because he knows they're going to be righteous. That is a very different view than what we would hold uh, here at Parkway being more reformed, okay? Here's another one from Irenaeus, okay? By the way, Irenaeus is fascinating. He's the first church father on record to baptize infants, okay? Which actually shows that before that, they're doing believer's baptism, or else that wouldn't be a significant thing. But anyway, he has given them over to unbelief and turned away his presence from the people of this mold, leaving them in the darkness which they have chosen for themselves, okay? So what you have in the early church is a simple summary. I know this is kind of technical and kind of academic. Here's all you have to remember. What did Christians believe about predestination in the early church? They basically tried to hold these two things in tension. God is sovereign. We still make decisions that are important, and they didn't really work out all the details, okay? That wasn't their big focus. It would be a later heresy that would make them have to work out the details. That's the one good thing about heretics. They make you define precisely what you do and don't mean. If you don't like having to study all this theology and you're like, oh, why can't we just love Jesus? It's because of heretics. People are trying to just love Jesus, and then a heretic comes in and says, I think Jesus is just a created being. And you're like, no, that's not what we mean. And now we got to do all this theology stuff. So you can thank the heretics that you have all this stuff to learn. But it makes us define what we mean by our faith more clearly, okay? What you have a lot in the early church is what is called synergism, okay? Let me explain this fancy term. In theology, there are these two contrasting terms when it comes to regeneration, when it comes to how you are saved. The first is called monergism. That's made up of two Greek words, monos. What does that mean? Mono. Don't, not the kissing disease, right? One. Monos, one. And then ergon means work or power, Okay? Right? You've heard of ergonomics. You try to make something work more comfortably for your hand or whatever it is. So monergism means there's one work, one energy, okay? meaning you're lost and God is the one who does all the stuff. All the stuff comes from God. That's monergism. Okay? 
Synergism, the word soon in Greek means with, all right? So in that sense, you're working with God. You're cooperating with God, okay? We, being a Reformed Baptist church, would hold to monergism. It is God alone who does the regenerating. It is God alone who does the saving, okay? But what you have cropping up in the early church is what is known as synergism. It's this idea that we, in, not just, not that we can like grow in holiness through sanctification, but in regeneration, in God birthing us again, we cooperate. We prepare ourselves for grace. We do the best we can. We do the best what's in us. And then once we've cleaned ourselves up a little bit, then God does the rest. Then God completes the process, okay? That is not a biblical idea, but you do have that idea creeping in in the early church. Give you some quotes on that. Ignatius, if you want to do well, God is ready to help you. Well, that's a huge problem because the Bible says we don't want to do well, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins by nature, children of wrath. There's none who seeks for God, no, not one. So if regeneration is synergistic, we're doomed, okay? Or here's another one. This comes from the shepherd of Hermas. That's not a person. That's an early Christian writing, uh, dates to about the second century. To those whose hearts the Lord saw were about to become pure, he gave repentance. Do you see the synergism there? It's basically saying God gives you grace once you've already done the best you can that's in you, okay? And I would say that's an unbiblical view, but you have that popping up in the early church, okay? So let's do a little summary. What did the early church believe about predestination? Shout it out. Be proud. If you're going to be ignorant, be ignorant loudly, like everyone on Twitter, okay? What did they believe? They weren't really sure. They would affirm somehow the Bible says you're predestined, somehow you're still called to be obedient to what you're called to. We haven't worked out all the details yet because we haven't had to, okay? That hasn't been a major stressor in the church, okay? What is synergism? Yes, where you and God cooperate in your regeneration or your justification or whatever, opposed to monergism is where God does it, okay? God is the one who does all the stuff. Is salvation, does that come from one energy, God, or does that come from two, you and God, okay? Now, let's get into what actually makes the early church have to start taking a stand on these issues, and it is what is known as the Pelagian controversy. There was a guy named Pelagius. Yes, I've trained you in a Pavlovian response to when you hear Pelagius that you boo. Who's Pelagius? Pelagius lived from 360 to about 420, and uh, he was a British monk, and he's a heretic, like literal heretic, like was actually condemned at a formal church council, all right, what's called the, called the Council of Carthage in 418. And uh, what Pelagius taught was literally works-based salvation. Pelagius said, you earn salvation by whether or not you obey the Bible. For Pelagius, you weren't born evil. You weren't born broken and sinful like the Bible teaches, like we would teach. For Pelagius, you're born morally neutral. By the way, if you know of anybody that thinks that people are born morally neutral, that is Pelagian. That is a heretical view, okay? Now, Pelagius thought that you were born morally neutral, and God's grace to you wasn't that he gave you grace. It was that he gave you the Bible that you could then know what he requires for you to do in your own strength, okay? So what is grace for Pelagius? The fact that you have a list of rules. And you're not born sinful. That's Pelagius, okay? Pelagius is the worst. Everything that is works-based salvation, trying to earn your favor before God, all that kind of nonsense goes back to Pelagius, okay? Let me give you some great Pelagian quotes here, uh, and you'll see how wicked he is on this. I love this first one. 
Instead of regarding God's commands as a privilege, we cry out to God's and say, this is too hard. This is too difficult. We cannot do it. We're only human and hindered by the weakness of the flesh. What blind madness, right? Do you see his uh, confidence in human ability, right? He's saying, when we say, God, I need your grace, I can't do it, that we're just being weak. We just need to tough it up and pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and thus be saved. Here's another one. We are not born in our full development, but with a capacity for good and evil. We are begotten without virtue as much as without fault. So he does not believe in original sin. He doesn't believe that we are born broken and evil and sinful, okay? I'll give you another one. How does he interpret Romans 9.15 about God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy? He says this, I will have mercy on him whom I have foreknown will be able to deserve compassion. Okay? So God looks ahead in the future. No one deserves mercy except these people who are crushing it of their own strength because they're not really born sinful, and that's who God predestines. That's his view. Okay? Pelagius is the worst. Okay? Pelagius is the kind of guy where if I was driving by and he was on the side of the road bleeding, I would just keep driving by. Okay? That's a joke. <laughs> but why are you so sympathetic towards him? It's good to get rid of heretics. How many people have been damned because of Pelagius? A lot. So maybe it's better sometimes that he bleeds out. Next. (laughs) The hero. Who rises up to challenge? So Pelagius is out teaching. People are doing this works-based salvation. We're not really born sinful thing. And so you have a hero that uh, arises from uh, like a phoenix from the ashes. And his name is Aurelius Augustinus, all right? Better known as St. Augustine. It's not St. Augustine. That's a type of grass. Okay? It's St. Augustine. That's how you say it in theology because his name in Latin is Augustinus, Aurelius Augustinus. Uh, or as R.C. Sproul would say, remember, St. Augustine is in Florida, St. Augustine is in heaven. Okay? I love St. Augustine. He is the most influential figure in church history outside of people in the Bible. Okay? So you say, what about Jesus? Well, of course. In church history, what we mean is those out not mentioned in the Bible. He is the most influential figure in church history, period, and there is not a close second. Catholics quote him, Protestants quote him. The, the Reformation is actually a debate over who owns Augustine, okay? Who's better interpreting Augustine? As Calvin would say, quote, Augustine is wholly ours. So what Augustine does, I love this guy. My son's middle name is Augustine after this guy. What Augustine does is Augustine is radically converted. He originally belongs to a cult called Manichaeanism, uh, and he is super sexually licentious, okay? He is sleeping around with all kinds of people. He's famous for praying, God, make me holy, but not yet, meaning I have more fun to have first. Uh, and he has a, uh, a child out of wedlock uh, because he's living with his girlfriend. He has a child named Adeodatus, which means a gift of God. Uh, and when he is eventually converted, he's converted reading the book of Romans. And when he's converted, he ends up eventually becoming a priest and then a bishop and all these kind of things. And he becomes the most influential figure in church history because he is such a good guy when it comes to theology. He defends the idea of grace. He defends the idea of the Trinity. Uh, He solves the problem of evil. How can God be good and there be evil in the world? He destroys his heretical opponents. He is super brilliant. He wrote something like uh, five million words. That's about the equivalent of 90 books. And uh, anyway, what he does is he raises up. He hears this from Pelagius, and he's like, that's not right. Paul here says that we're born broken and sinful, that no one seeks for God, that God hardens people's hearts. That can't be right what you're saying. And so Augustine is the hero that fights against Pelagius. And here are some of the things that Augustine says. Ready? God has appointed to them to be regenerated before they die physically, whom he predestined to eternal life as the most merciful giver of grace. Notice that it's based on God's grace and not our ability to crush it like uh, Pelagius thought. 
To those whom he has predestined to eternal death, however, he is also the most righteous awarder of punishment, not only on account of the sins which they add in the indulgence of their own will, but also because of their original sin, even if, as in the case of infants, they add nothing to it. Okay? He's saying, even when you're an infant, you're born broken and sinful. And then in addition to that, you also commit your own sins. So you're doubly damned. You're damned because of Adam's sin and because of your own sin. Okay? Here's another one. There was one lump of clay of perdition out of Adam to which only punishment was due. From this same lump, vessels were made which are destined for honor. For the potter has authority over the same lump of clay. What lump? The lump that had already perished and whose just damnation was already assured. So be thankful that you have escaped. You have escaped the death certainly due to you and found life which was not due to you. What he's saying is damnation is what we deserve. Salvation is just due to God's grace. Okay, is just due to God's grace. So Augustine's really important here. St. Augustine may have held a view that is uh, what we would call today single predestination. Okay, we talked about that last week, uh, that God elects to salvation, but he just kind of passively passes over those who are going to be damned, although there's some debate about this. He didn't fully work out this doctrine of predestination because that wasn't his point. His point was trying to fight Pelagius on this workspace, I'm not born sinful thing, Okay. And then uh, the Roman Catholic Church didn't emphasize Augustine's views on predestination, but the Reformers eventually would. Everyone loves Augustine, if you're an Orthodox Christian, whether you're Catholic or Protestant. It's a big shame, though, that in the Roman Catholic Church, they have not adopted Augustine's views on predestination. I wonder if, had they done that, you wouldn't have needed the Reformation. Because predestination really shows whether or not you believe God's grace. How free is God's grace? Does he literally just carte blanche, give it to somebody because he decides to love them? Or is there something in that person that causes him to do that? And I would say it is the first thing. Okay? Everybody good so far? Whew, all right, let's shake out those cobwebs, those ivory tower, old university kind of uh, things. And then now let's get into the medieval church. Okay? So in the early church, they didn't have a fully formed view of predestination. Okay? Synergism started creeping in early. You had a real bad guy named Pelagius, who's the worst. I said Pelagius. And then you had the hero, St. Augustine, that said, let's go to the scriptures. I actually think that the fact that Augustine had to go through all that sexual sin helped him better see grace because he realized I was drawn towards something that was evil. I wasn't born neutral. I was born corrupted. I was born broken. I was born sinful. And so you have Augustine who will be a great defender, not only of predestination, but of grace in general and the fact that we are born broken and sinful. Mankind for Augustine, he's actually called Dr. Grace, okay? That's what they call him. Uh, his followers were called the, uh, what is it, the hopeless lovers of all or nothing grace, okay? So he is, uh, he is a good guy in that. Okay, Let's fast forward to predestination in the medieval church, okay? The Middle Ages, 500 to about 1500 AD. Let me give you the summary on this. The major theologians of this era are committed to rejecting Pelagianism, boo, and they are all forced to wrestle with Augustine. Most, like Aquinas, will develop a view that rejects Pelagianism, but there is still a tendency toward thinking God awards salvation to those who do their best, who do what is in them, okay? Let me describe to you how the medieval church thought of justification, okay? You ready? You, does everybody here understand that money doesn't have much inherent value, like that piece of paper that's a $100 bill inherently doesn't have a lot of money? Does everybody understand that, okay? It has an ascribed value, right? Some king on a mountain somewhere decided it would be worth something. I'm kidding. I don't know anything about economics, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. It's society within a, an economic system that determines the worth of that money. That's how come you can have inflation and stuff, even though the piece of paper didn't change, okay? What the medieval church would say is that's kind of like what our efforts are. 
Our efforts are like the paper money. They don't actually have much value, but we have to put forward all that effort so that God can see it and then give us the actual ascribed value, okay? That is not a biblical idea, but that is a popular kind of idea in the, uh, the Middle Ages, that God gives grace to him who does what is in him. Meaning, grace in the Middle Ages means you do your best and God makes up for the rest. Whereas I would say biblical grace is not you do your best and God makes up for the rest, but God does all of it. You're not only at zero, you're in the negative because you've sinned. God is the one that gets you back to zero and then gives you a super surplus because of Christ's righteousness, and he's the one that does all these things, okay? But you need to keep in mind that uh, the medieval church is, uh, will reject Pelagianism, which is good, but they don't fully embrace Augustine. They don't fully get to his view of predestination. So let me give you some uh, interesting things here. In 529, you have what is called the Synod of Orange, okay? That is a, uh, that's a town. That's not like uh, their favorite fruit or something like that. That's a town, the Synod of Orange, and uh, it's 529. And 529 at the Synod of Orange, church leaders gathered together to discuss the views of Augustine, Pelagius, and the semi-Pelagians, okay? So basically what's going on is in the 500s, the church is getting together and they're saying, okay, okay, we need to, we need to sit down and we need to have a definitive statement about what we believe about grace. We hate Pelagius, we like Augustine, but Augustine in our view kind of goes too far with his predestination stuff. Uh, what are we gonna do? Okay, what are we going to do? And so what happens at the Senate of Orange, hold on, let me flip my notes. What happens at the Senate of Orange is basically they decide that they like Augustine's views on grace, original sin, etc., but they don't like his view on predestination. They also closely link those who had received infant baptism as being more able to cooperate with God in salvation, okay? So let me, just, let me just summarize these things for you, ready? And you've got this here on your notes. What is Augustinianism? It's this, God alone saves you, you're born sinful, amen, okay? We as Protestants, we as Baptists, we as uh, Calvinistic, we believe we're Augustinian. We believe that we are born sinful, totally depraved. We cannot do any good in God's eyes. We're not as bad as we could be, but in God's eyes, we can do no good. And therefore, God alone saves. That's Augustinianism. Pelagianism is the opposite. It's you save yourself, you're not born sinful, okay? God's grace was not actually giving you grace. His grace was he gave you rules so that you might know what you need to do to earn salvation. You're born, you're not born sinful for uh, Pelagius. Now, there's another term here I've used that's called semi-Pelagianism. What is semi-Pelagianism? Without even looking at it, what do you think it is? A little bit of both, right? It's kind of, uh, you know, Pelagianism decaf or something like that. And uh, what it is, is it's this idea that you take the first steps in salvation by doing what is in you, but God completes the process, okay? You're born corrupted by sin, but not totally dead in sin, okay? That's semi-Pelagianism. So what you have here is uh, you've got kind of these three views. Pelagianism, you earn it. Augustinianism, God does it all. And then there's kind of this middle view, which is you do the best you can. You're not born dead. You're just born corrupted with sin. You do the best you can, and then God will give you grace. It's kind of this, uh, this middle road, which in my mind, there is no middle road on this. You're either all grace or you're not. Uh, and so that's what the, the, the council's debating. So I've got a helpful uh, <clears throat> phrase here that I uh, took from the Monergism website, which is helpful. It says this, the terms Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Pelagianism, and Arminianism, mm, interesting, have in common that they all present a form of synergistic theology. That is, the beginning of man's salvation in regeneration is not accomplished by the sole and unilateral act of God, but is produced by God and man, quote, working together. In some sense, 
Each of these synergistic systems is in opposition to Calvinism or Augustinianism, which teaches that God sovereignly gives to each of his elect a new living heart, which cannot do otherwise than believe in Christ and so be justified and eternally saved. So basically, just to summarize, this council is getting together to say, who's right? Augustine, Pelagius, or kind of this halfway view? Okay, kind of this halfway view. And what the council decides is they, they like Augustine. They're primarily Augustinian, but they don't like his view of predestination. So they don't go as far in grace as they could. That's what you kind of have in Roman Catholic thinking today. Yes, if you ask a Roman Catholic, are you saved by Christ alone? They will say yes. If you say, are you saved by grace alone? They will say yes. If you say, how do you get the grace? They'll say, ah, this is where... Hail Marys and penance and confirmation and partaking of the Eucharist and Mass and all these other things come in there. So works kind of creep in the back door uh, with, uh, with Roman Catholicism, okay? Semi-Pelagians, Faustus, Vincent of Laurent, John Cassian, etc., believe that God predestines what is good but merely permits what is bad. You ever heard somebody pray this? Uh, or they're not pray this, but they'll say something like this. They'll say, God knew this was going to happen. God, God knew this was going to happen. That's true, but that's not strong enough, okay? If God knows that something is going to happen, he has to be the one that ordained that that would happen, okay? If God knows something that's gonna happen, that means it's already set. If it wasn't set, God couldn't know it. God could possibly be wrong, but God can't be wrong. If God knows the future, then the future is set. It cannot happen otherwise than that. Who set that future if not God himself, okay? So you need to realize God doesn't just know the future. God knows a future that he himself set. You can't separate what God knows from what God ordains. Major players on the topic of predestination, okay? These are the kind of guys that uh, have a lot to say about predestination in the Middle Ages. Some of them have weird names. If you're a pregnant lady and you're looking to name your kids one of these, why don't you pick one of these weird names, okay? It'll be unique. It's a way to be very millennial today, but also be very historical and theological, okay? The first guy, a guy whose uh, name is Gottschalk, Gottschalk of Orbai. You'll notice on the dates there, 800 to 869, they both have question marks because there is some debate about when he lived. He's kind of this mysterious figure. But he developed a doctrine of double predestination and limited atonement based upon Augustine's works. Okay? So long before you have John Calvin, you have Calvinism, you have Augustine and you have Gottschalk, and you have Anselm, and you have Aquinas, and you have all these other guys. I say all of that this. This is the one lesson you're supposed to take away from today. You're like, Zach, this is a bunch of boring history. Here's the lesson you're supposed to take away. Ready? To wrestle with the topic of predestination and understand God's sovereignty is part of what it means to be Christian, not just what a part it means to be a Calvinist or something like that. A lot of non-Calvinist churches today are actually closer to Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism than they are to biblical Christianity. Okay? Sometimes it's weird when somebody will join our church, they'll say, what is this Calvinism thing? And we explain it, and they look at us like we're weird. And so let me say to you what I can't say to them in that meeting because it wouldn't be pastoral. We hold the normal position. We hold the historic position. We hold what it means historically to be Protestant. Arminianism is the weird position. Arminianism is the position that has actually been condemned at the Synod of Dort, okay? We're the ones holding the not-condemned position. We're the ones holding the biblical position. We're, we're the, this is the normal standard default. So if you come in and that seems weird to you, you probably grew up in a tradition that didn't teach a theological equipping class. <laughs> Next. Gottschalk, by the way, just as a fun fact, there's an alternate pronunciation and spelling of his name, which is Godeskalk. Impress your friends. St. Anselm. 1033 through 1109. Who remembers where we've heard about Anselm before in this class? There are two places where we've talked about Anselm. By the way, before you answer that, let me just go on another rabbit trail. When I say saint here, that is a Roman Catholic designation. 
Biblically, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, okay? So I hereby canonize all of you that know Christ, okay? Uh, The term saint, though, in Roman Catholic theology is this special status of like these super Christians where people have done miracles in their name and blah, blah, blah. I'm just using that term because it's a convention, okay? It's like a title, like doctor, uh, but that doesn't mean that I, uh, I think that there are special levels of saints or something. But anyway, Anselm. Who remembers where we've heard about Anselm? We've heard about him twice in theological equipping. Who can name one of those times? Mm, I knew we were giving you too much too fast. Anybody? He has a famous argument for the existence of God. Yes, yes. He is the uh, founder of what is called the ontological argument. Basically, we don't have time to go into what that is, but that's Anselm. Uh, He also was one when we talked about theories of atonement. He was the one saying that uh, God must send Christ to die for our sins, to atone for us, to preserve God's honor, all right, to preserve God's honor. Uh, Anyway, here's what he says. Anselm states that God does ordain both good and bad things, both salvation and condemnation. However, he does not ordain them in the same way. He ordains them in accordance with someone's will and not against it, okay? Greg Allison commenting on Anselm says this, God does not predestine people to eternal punishment against their will, but he predestines them so that of necessity they are condemned as a consequence of their evil deeds in which they engage freely. Likewise, God does not predestine people to eternal life against their own will, but he predestines them so that they are saved as a consequence of their faith in Christ in which they engage freely. What you have here is kind of a nascent form of compatibilism, meaning that God can ordain something that you also choose, okay? That's the biblical view. God ordains Christ to be crucified. The people wanting to crucify him also want to crucify him. It doesn't go against their will. It goes with their will. God ordains that Judas will betray Christ. Judas also wants to betray Christ because he wants that sweet bag of silver, right? Because he used to help himself to the money coffers and these kind of things. And so there is a sense in which what he's saying is God can truly ordain something and you also be responsible at the same time. That God's will and man's will are compatible, not incompatible, okay? And then lastly here, St. Thomas Aquinas. After Augustine, who is the most influential theologian for Protestants. Luther, exactly right. Martin Luther, okay? If you're a Protestant, if you're not Roman Catholic right now, you have Luther to thank for that, unless you're Greek Orthodox, okay? You have Luther to thank for that. He's the most, next most influential theologian after Augustine. If you are Roman Catholic, the next most influential theologian after Augustine is Thomas Aquinas, okay? Aquinas is not his last name. His, uh, his dad was this uh, governor kind of figure in a town called Aquino in Italy. That's where Aquinas comes from, St. Thomas. And he is crazy smart. Like, however, think of the smartest person you know that's not God. Way smarter than that, okay? He is brilliant. He decides that he wants to become a, uh, a monk when he is a, a teenager, and his parents hate that. They don't want that. So what they do, according to legend, is they lock him in his room, and they put a naked woman in there. And he does what every good young man does. He grabs a brand from the fire and chases her out with it, right? And that's kind of one of these stories of how holy he is and these kind of things. He would dictate three books at a time. So back in this time, typically you wouldn't write your own book. You would say it to a scribe. He would have three different scribes, and he would be saying, write this down, stop, mid-sentence, mid-sentence, and he's writing three books at the same time, okay? He's absolutely brilliant. He writes the Summa Theologia, uh, which is, again, still one of the most influential works of Christian theology. And uh, he, what he does and why he's famous is he summarizes Christianity and Aristotle. Okay? So take one of the greatest philosophers of all time, then take the Bible, and that's Aquinas. Okay? The, the saying is, 
that Aquinas baptizes Aristotle, if you want to say it that way, just as Augustine baptized Plato. So, Aquinas, what does he have to say about predestination? He actually says some things that sound really Reformed. Sometimes the Catholics are not as bad as Luther makes them sound. Here's what he says. Thus, as men are ordained to eternal life through the providence of God, it likewise is part of that providence to permit some to fall away from that end. That sounds like double predestination to me. This is called reprobation. Therefore, as predestination includes the will to confer grace and glory, so also reprobation includes the will to permit a person to fall into sin and to impose the punishment of damnation on account of that sin. Okay? So Aquinas holds a view that's very similar to the Reformers on this. It is a view of double predestination. It's a little different. It's like Reformation light, again, Reformation diet, but he's on the right track. Okay? Now, let me give you some quotes and some interesting things he says about predestination. So, again, he's a philosopher. He's very logical. So, he's going to be making some logical points for God's predestination. Let's look at a few of these together. I've given the quote, and then I've given what it means. Here's the first one. It is clear that what is of grace is the effect of predestination, and this cannot be considered as the reason of predestination. It is impossible that the whole effect of predestination in general should have any cause as coming from us because... Whatever is in man disposing him towards salvation is all included under the effect of predestination, even the preparation for grace. That sounds like super boring. What does he mean? What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. Ready? You can't say that there is something in man that makes God choose him because anything in man would have to come from God first. That's all he's saying. He's saying God can't elect somebody based on something in them because anything they have in them would have come from God. Okay? So if God looks ahead in the future and sees who's going to choose him, why did that person decide to choose him? That would have to come from God too, okay? logically speaking. If God precedes us, everybody believe that God comes before we do? Everybody believe that God has no new knowledge, that he knows everything? Then all of God's decisions happen before any of ours. Okay? Let that blow your mind. Next! Predestination applies to angels, not uh, just as it does to men, although they have never been unhappy, i.e. sinful. That's a fascinating argument for, for predestination. Here's what he's saying. Election cannot be based on something in people because angels don't have a sin nature. They're not born into sin, and yet some are elect and some are not. Interesting. Here's another logical argument Aquinas makes. Foreknowledge is not in the things foreknown, but in the person who foreknows them. That's God. Therefore, predestination is in the one who predestines and not in the predestined. What does that mean? It means God's foreknowledge is not about some future decision that humans make. That would be in the things known. It is knowledge God himself has, the person who foreknows, as he would say it, which means election is not dependent upon human future decisions but upon something in God. Okay? The reason I mention this is here you have one of the, most, the foremost Catholic theologians writing some pretty strong things about predestination. Again, Aquinas is wrong on justification, but he's right in that he's anti-Pelagian. He hates Pelagius, okay? And then lastly, I'll give you a Gregory of Rimini. Last one, and then we'll have a, a lot of conversation because I know this is really technical. I don't know how to make this simpler because the, the Middle Ages are not people's most exciting times typically, all right? So we can talk about the Crusades. That'd be fun. Huh? That's interesting. Okay. Gregory of Rimini. It is clear to me from the statements of Scripture and of the saints that the following conclusions must be accepted as true and taught and preached as such, that no one is predestined on account of the good use of the free will which God foreknows and considers to their advantage, that whoever God predestines is predestined in a manner which is gracious and merciful, 
that no one is condemned on account of the evil use of free will, which is for known by God. Okay? So let me give you a summary. We, as Christians today, 2018, here in uh, McKinney, Texas, at a uh, Protestant church, a Baptist church, a Reformed church, we stand within a long line, all right? We stand within a tradition, okay? In the early church, they don't have a really well-developed view of predestination. Some people are better than others, but they kind of hold them in tension, but they don't really know what to do yet because you haven't had a reason where they needed to sharpen those theological swords, you get that with Pelagius, and you get the hero Augustine who comes up with a view of predestination, which would be much closer to what we would hold today. And then in the Middle Ages, you have a little too much synergism, a little too much of God and man cooperating. That's not good. But you do have some figures that write about the fact that God predestines, the fact that God predestines based upon something in God and not something in us, okay? Let me ask you this question. I'll end with this, and then we'll have Q&A, but Jeff is not here because he's on vacation, so I will wing it. Let me ask you this. When I said at the beginning of this class, and I had you read in Matthew, and it says that the gates of Hades will not overcome Christ's church, what do we then do as Protestants? We're not part of the institutional Roman Catholic Church. Are we a legitimate church? Are we legitimate Christians? You have to realize there's no such thing as two bodies of Christ. There's only one body of Christ. So we can't be starting some sort of new church. That's what a cult is. That's what heresy is. What I would say is, by us trying to go back to guys like Augustine, by us trying to go back to the teachings of the Bible, by us trying to go back to that, we are standing within that tradition that is Trinitarian and that is anti-Pelagian, okay? Who were our Christian forefathers in the Middle Ages when everybody's Roman Catholic? My answer to that is those who hate Pelagius and those who believe in God as Trinity, those are our Christian forefathers. So we're not a separate church. We're not an offshoot. We're not a breaking off. What we're trying to do as Protestants is we're trying to get back into, let me do it this way. I'm going to erase this. You can't read it anyway, so that's okay. I spent so much time making this during the week, and it looked awful. And then I got to the back of the room, and I was like, what am I doing? Okay, so what some people will see is they will see Protestantism like this, that you have Roman Catholicism. You have one church. Jesus is protecting his church. The gates of Hades aren't overcoming it. And then here comes Luther, and boom, we're some sort of weird offshoot that goes like that, okay? Okay. That's not how I think the history works. I think the history works like this. You have the early church, who's being pretty faithful, and then Roman Catholicism starts to drift. Prayers to saints, synergism, all that kind of stuff. And so what the Reformers are doing is they're just getting back to right here. They're trying to get back to Augustine and before, basically, is what they're trying to do. Okay? So we're not an offshoot. We're not a second church. We're saying we believe the same things Augustine believed. We believe the same things the apostles believed. Okay? So where do Christians find their heritage despite the fact that Protestant churches didn't come around to the 1500s? Well, because the church is not defined as an institution. It's defined as those who preach the same gospel the apostles preached. It's defined as, it's defined as those with correct doctrine. This is probably the most heady lesson we'll have this semester. So if you hated this, don't worry about it. You'll have one more next week, and then you'll enjoy the rest of the class. Let's, uh, let's take some questions.